So today's story isn't just about a clothing brand that's had a huge influence on fashion and the business of fashion. It's actually a story about overcoming fears and deep personal insecurities. Because back in the early 80s, Eileen Fisher was extremely introverted and even terrified at the idea of speaking to buyers and customers about her clothes. How she overcame that? It's a pretty cool story. It first ran in 2017, and I hope you enjoy it. I was so freaked out. The first day, I literally couldn't speak. I just stood there. People would ask me questions like, how much does it cost? What's the style number? And I, like, froze. And other people in my booth would help me out and say, you know, oh, you know, why don't you come back tomorrow? She'll help you out. I was like a deer in headlights. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how an introverted interior designer got over her stage fright to launch Eileen Fisher, a multi-million dollar clothing company for women. So if you know a little bit about the clothing industry, the giants, especially for women's apparel, are brands like Chanel and Versace and Prada and, of course, H&M and Zara. So given that Eileen Fisher does about $300 million a year in revenue, it's comparatively small. But in women's fashion, the brand is also incredibly influential. And not just for the designs, but how Eileen Fisher started her company. To be precise, with just $350, she never took a dime from outside investors, and she still owns about 60% of her company. Her employees own the rest. Now, if you've seen the clothes, you'll know that they're pretty spare and minimalist. Low-key, but also elegant, which is sort of how you might describe Eileen Fisher. It's funny because lately I've been kind of calling myself a shy extrovert. (laughs) I think, I don't know that I'm wired so much that way. I just think that something, I was kind of shut down when I was young. And, you know, the classroom, I remember there were like 60 kids in my Catholic school classroom. And it was just always safer to to hide and to be small and to not speak. Eileen grew up in a middle-class family in Des Plaines, Illinois in the 1950s and 60s. She had five sisters and a brother. Her dad worked as an accountant for a local company, and her mom spent her days at home doing laundry and cleaning and making dinner for all nine of them. Um, I think what I mostly remember is my mother, you know, her kind of unhappiness. I think it was hard raising seven children, and um, I think she felt it was her job to do all the hard work. And um, my dad felt, you know, his job was to go to work and make the money and Hmm. come home and be taken care of after that. So she would pretty much kind of, we used to call it ranting and raving all day long. (laughs) And then my dad would come home, and just before my dad would come home, she would get dressed and get the meal ready and sometimes even put on lipstick. And I just remember I was about 16, and my mother had a breakdown. And my father said that the next day he was driving to work, and he had to pull over on the side of the road, and he broke down crying, realizing that he had thought only a few days before that these were the happiest days of his life. 
Wow. Um, but they were happy. You know, there were a lot of happy moments. Um, yeah, we played. The kids played. You know, we had the neighborhood, the suburbs, and bicycles, and we played kick the can at night, and the good humor truck came down the street, and we got ice cream, and things like that. So, you know, it was pretty much your typical suburban experience, I think. Eileen went off to college at the University of Illinois in the late 1960s without any real idea of what she wanted to do. She started out as a math major, but eventually she decided on interior design. You know, I just loved fabric and color and playing with the shapes. And back to my mom for a second, I had sewed with my mother when I was younger. So that was some of my happy memories with my mother. I used to have these pictures in my mind of the clothes I wanted to wear. and We would go shopping, and I loved being in the fabric store. That was one of my favorite places to be. In her early 20s, Eileen moved to New York with a friend, but with no real plan. Now, this was 1972, when you could actually find an apartment in Manhattan for 100 bucks a month. So to pay her rent, Eileen started doing some freelance graphic design gigs. And eventually, she got a job working with a Japanese graphic designer named Roy Yoshimura. Yeah, I was an assistant, so I'd started just doing whatever needed to be done. And um, we designed logos, and we designed um, packages, things for banks, and, and then we did stuff for Japanese clients, Kieran Beer, and things like that. And... After a short while, we were, like, working together, and, you know, we ended up getting into a relationship, which was like, oh, no. And were you traveling? Were you? Did yes. you go to Japan? Was right, it? right. So this is exactly where the clothing idea came from. So um, I st- we started traveling. Um, we took two trips together to Japan. I'm just trying to imagine, like, this is the, I guess, the sort of, Mid to late seventies, right? Mid to late seventies. You're flying from New York to Japan. It right. must have been pretty glamorous, right? I mean, that was a big deal. Yeah, I guess so. It was also kind of stressful, you know. I felt pressure, and you know, um, I couldn't speak the language, so tried hard to learn it. Um, so there was glamour, yes, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not. I don't. I'm not so attracted to glamour. I'm I always more uncomfortable with glamour. Yeah. I always say I'm this uncomfortable person. That's why I had to make these comfortable clothes. Yeah. What What struck you about about design that you came across in Japan? Um, just how simple and beautiful things were. Simple, really simple. Like you could really see, like with the kimono, for example, one shape, you know, for thousands of years. And, you know, they would just do, you know, use different fabrics and different techniques to make it different every time. And, you know, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And, yeah, that inspired me. How long did you did you work with? His name was Ray, right? The, Ray. Yeah. yeah. How how long did you work with him? Um, about four years. And I mean, of course, anytime there's a professional and and personal relationship, it, this can also always often causes some complications. W- was that did that sort of begin to unravel your your personal relationship? Begin to unravel your professional relationship? Oh God. Uh, yes, definitely. It was all connected. Yeah. Uh, we thought we could split up and work, continue to work together. Um, but that became quite clear within a few months that, that was just not going to work. But, um, yeah, so I ended up 
separating, getting my own little loft eventually after about a year of bouncing around and finding a little space in a loft in Tribeca. And, uh, where you lived and worked? Where I lived and worked. And I was stumbling around doing still, you know, a few, you know, some Japanese clients still, and then some other uh, work I was stumbling around and getting. I don't even know how, and if I look back, because um, it was really day by day. And, and it was it was just freelance, like, yeah. design work. Right, right. Uh, apartments, I did a few apartments, I did small office, uh, dentist office, things yeah. like that, just whatever I could get, yeah. and trying to survive, and pay the rent and, you know, keep working as a designer and not go back to working as a waitress. That was yeah. my one commitment. I wasn't going to end up waitressing again. I hadn't done that in many years, and I didn't want to go back to that. And then I met some people, and that's when, although I had been kind of cooking on this idea of the, you know, the clothing business. You've and been cooking on this idea already in the early 80s? Oh, Yeah. It was it was in my mind for probably five years before the first garments appeared. To make your own clothes or to, to try and design clothes that was in your mind? Right, to try and design clothes. Where did that idea come from? Um, I, I don't know. Hmm. I think some of it was that when I was trying to get dressed for, you know, the Japanese clients and, you know, the different... I, wanted, I needed to look like a designer. And, <laughs> and what did that mean? <laughs> oh, what did it mean to look like a designer? To look, you know... Put together and uh, sophisticated and yeah, yeah. clean and elegant and simple. I wanted to reflect my own style of my own aesthetic. You know, I wore a uniform when I was young, and at at Catholic school. Catholic school, and so when I was trying to get dressed as a designer, I kind of I I never really liked the uniform, but I liked the concept of making getting dressed simple. Just get up and have enough to think about, (laughs) enough to worry about. Just get put the clothes on and go. You know, I wanted to make it simple, but I didn't want it to be so confined that it had to be exactly like you know the uniform or you know one only one particular shape i didn't want to wear the same thing every day mm. and i just had this idea that i could make these simple clothes no one's really doing it and the images would come to me i would see these simple shapes and the first one i remember was i called a box top it almost had a this, you know quite straight lines like a kimono sleeve and it was about the way it would drape when you had it on mm. So that was kind of the first picture that came to me. And others were, you know, the simple little wide-leg pant. And, you know, there was a vest and a shell. And these first few pieces, it just started to come to me. And I was talking to people because now I had artist friends in Tribeca and other people who were designing clothes and jewelry and things like that. You were saying to them, which often happens when people have an idea, you were saying, I have this idea to design these, these beautiful, simple you know, pieces of clothing for women, and and were, were your friends saying you should go for it? You should, you should, yeah. you should do it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And you would have these conversations for, you know, for a long time with many people, like over a period of five years. Um, yeah, uh, people probably thought I was really obsessed. So this is what this is what I'm curious about because this is the point at which 99.9 percent of people do nothing. Yeah. They have a great idea, and they do nothing either because they decide not to do something or just because of bad luck. Mm-hmm. What was it that that switched that idea into something you actually tried? Wow. Okay, that's good. So 
I think what happened is that I'm so I'm seeing these pictures and I'm trying to imagine where do I start, you know, and how would I make this happen? And I couldn't picture myself, you know, like what if I made these clothes? How would I do that? And 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 then I couldn't picture myself. How would I sell them? Yeah. You know, would I go to stores? Other people were telling me they were going to like um, Henry Bendel and waiting in line for hours, and the buyer would go like, nope. I don't like it. <laughs> and you did not, that was not you. You were not a, you're not a hustler in that way. No, I was a shy uh, uh, introvert, I thought, I think at the time. But <laughs> um, but I knew I couldn't. I was definitely not a hustler and I could not have done that. The I idea my, was mortifying to you to have yeah. to, to go and yeah. try to, what 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 do you think was the, would have been the hardest part of that? The, the rejection, somebody saying no, or trying to articulate what, what it was that you... Oh. Both. Hmm. Both. I think probably it was still rejection at the time, you know, but articulating was and still is a kind of a, an issue for me. Just thinking today about trying to tell the story. Very you're doing, a gr- you're doing great. I, oh, thanks. I, I need encouragement. This is an incredible story. So, <laughs> so you're thinking, all right, I, I, I want to try this, but I, I cannot even imagine what I would do after right. I would have like a sample of this. Right. And so what ended up happening is I had a friend who took me to the boutique show. and um, This is like a famous show, in like a, a trade show? It's a trade show. In, in New York. Right. But it was a show, a big show, that catered to the small boutiques around the country. And a lot of small designers and small companies would come there and show their things. And so I remember going to the show just out of curiosity. Just to kind check of. it out. Mm-hmm. And kind of floating through and going like, oh, I can do this. I see how to do this, you know? Like I just looked at these different booths and saw how the designers were presenting their clothes, a little rack here, a few things hanging. You know, oh, I knew how to do a logo. I could do that. I'd need a logo, wouldn't I? I'd need a name, you know? Um, So I could picture a whole story. So it wasn't just like one garment. It was that I had to people had to see a kind of a whole to understand that it went together and and that it was a, a little story somehow. And, and and by going to the design show, you thought, well, hey, I'm, I don't have to be a carnival barker. I can just stand here and wait for people to come to me. <laughs> exactly. And the people who like it will come and write orders or, you know, give me feedback. And the people who don't like it will just walk by. So then I committed to um, a booth, a small section, just like a one wall of a booth for for the the same design for the show? next show for the next show this is in like 1983 84 must have been 83 because i think it was 84 that i at the show that i first introduced the line you thought i'm going to go there and show I'm gonna my go clothes there and, and i'm going to show my clothes right and uh, did you have no uh, i had no clothes did you I have had, a name for the company no i had no name i had no clothes i had no fabric i had no styles i had nothing <laughs> you had designs though right just pictures in my mind i had in nothing so <laughs> and how much time did you have Three weeks. You had three, three weeks, weeks to come up with a clothing line, a fashion line? <laughs> no, don't get carried away now. It wasn't really a fashion line to start out. It was four garments. Yeah, but still, I, that's all. But still. Yeah. But I had sewn, you know, as a kid, so I knew, you know, that it wasn't that complicated. Yeah. But I was lucky. And this is how, this is kind of weird how things happen. But, you know, again, one of the friends I'd been talking to said, I have a friend who's a pattern maker. She works in a clothing company. Hmm. Maybe she can help you. So she came and she worked for me at night and on the weekends, those first three weeks. This this woman just volunteered? 
And she, well, she said, you can pay me. I know you're, gonna, you're good for it. You can pay me when you get paid. Did you draw a bunch of designs and give them to her to sew? Or did you sew them? Well, I pretty much talked my way through it. I scribbled them, you know, my little sketches. And yeah. she said, whoa, those are pretty simple. <laughs> um, what's special about them, Eileen? I was like, well, it's special that they're simple. And she said, oh, okay. <laughs> but I'll help you. And so first I had to find fabric. That was kind of the hardest thing. And so she helped me, you know, figure out where I could go to get fabric. What, what kind of fabric was it? It was a linen and cotton blend. Yeah. So what did you what did you end up making? I made the box top, mm-hmm. the little crop pant, kind of based on the flood pant yeah. <laughs> from Japan. And I made a little shell, a, a vest that kind of went over the um, top. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I made a little shell so you could wear it, just a shell with a simple pant. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, these are like the pieces on my line today. It's so amazing to just see the pictures. And what, co- what colors were they? They were um, like a teal color and kind of a burgundy... Uh, not quite burgundy, salmony, pinky, red, you know, and uh, ivory. So after three weeks, you had four pieces of clothing, samples, and yes. that's what you were going to take to this trade show? Uh, well, I made them in the three colors, so I had 12 pieces, and that's what I took with my little logo. And I was I spent probably as much time obsessing about the graphics and the name because I didn't want to call it Eileen Fisher. Why, why not? Because I didn't see it as so personal. I thought it was something that, you know, people would make their own, um, that it would, you know, that it wasn't so personally me. It was, you know, <laughs> strange. Well, so what did you end up calling it for that for that show? So I called it Eileen Fisher because I couldn't think of anything else. And, <laughs> right. and I was working as Eileen Fisher as a designer, so I had yeah. to, I already had my name registered as a business. So I guess if I was going to take checks, I better have a business name. And so that sort of worked for them. So so like when they when they make the, the Eileen Fisher story movie, like feature oh, film God. one day, and they have this scene in there where you're at that first trade show, oh, is there like this, is this, is this like this amazing moment where designers are like, oh my gosh, this is life changing. I have never seen anything <laughs> like it. Is that what was going on? No, 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 okay. no, no, no. Absolutely not. Right, okay. I was so freaked out. The first day, I literally couldn't speak. I just stood there. People would ask me questions like, how much does it cost? What's the style number? And I like froze. And other people in my booth would help me out and say, you know, oh, you know, why don't you come back tomorrow? She'll <laughs> help you out. I just want to give you a hug and say, it's going to be okay, Eileen. It's going to be okay. <laughs> I was just like, I was like a deer in headlights. So, so did you eventually get over the stage fright and, and start selling? I did. I did. I sold to eight stores. I sold about 100 pieces. So a couple thousand bucks? Yeah, three thousand bucks. Right. <laughs> so, exactly. did you? Were you like skipping home, saying, oh, I, "I was 3, thrilled." Bucks, you know, like I, I right? was thrilled, and it was the right amount because any more, I would have never been able to deliver. I wouldn't have been able to get enough fabric. I wouldn't have been able to figure it all out fast enough or get the money to make it happen. Yeah. So that was a pretty. That was pretty good. You walk away. Yeah. Three thousand dollars, and these are boutiques around the country. Right. Exactly. And uh, presumably you, you filled those orders. You, you made most of them yourself? Cut every one myself on the floor in my loft in Tribeca. Wow. And then carried them in garbage bags down my stairs onto the subway and out to Queens. And did you sew your name, Eileen Fisher, in the 
tag, like in the in the clothes? The label. I had a, a label made that um, the sewers, the this tiny sewing company out in Queens, sewed them. <laughs> so at this point, this is like 1984. You've got three thousand bucks, and are you like incorporated? Do you like do an LLC and all that stuff? Oh, I don't think I did that until I got my next round of orders. Oh, so how did that happen? Well, I I came up with eight styles, and went back to the next boutique show, and this time I had this new fabric that I found. It was a very textural French terry, very huh. kind of lush fabric, like a and thicker, thicker like cotton, a thicker cotton, like yeah. Like yeah. I think of terry, I think of towels. More like a elegant sweatshirt fabric. Huh. And came back with three different colors, peach mint and white. Remember, uh, and. This time, um, people stood in line to write orders. Wow. I was like, oh my God, I knew something was happening. When we come back, how Eileen Fisher took her clothes from trade show floors to department stores across the country. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, committed to protecting healthcare workers globally. 3M employee Chris knows that healthcare workers, like his daughter, may need to get up close to provide patient care. He's working hard to direct high performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots so she and nurses like her can be protected while caring for their patients. Hear their story at 3M.com/slash improving lives. 3M Science, applied to life. Support for this podcast and the following message come from McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. From birthday parties to little league after game hangouts, everyone's been to McDonald's. It's more than just a place to get tasty, affordable food. It's a place where friends and families from the community come together. And because the majority of restaurants are run by independent franchisees, McDonald's has deep roots in communities. Show support for your community the next time you walk into a local McDonald's. I'm loving it. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So at this point in the story, Eileen had just sold $40,000 worth of orders in her second trade show. And things seemed to be looking up. The only problem was she now had to figure out how to put together a real functioning business. But I was even further back figuring out just how do I get the money to buy the fabric? And, you know, you know, how am I going to produce this? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you had, you had $40,000 right. worth of orders, but not $40,000 in cash. They just made the orders. Right. You had to go and buy all of the material. And right. I'm assuming you didn't have $40,000. Right. Well, I would have needed about twenty to do the production. Hmm. Um, and um, But I got some good advice, actually, while I was at the boutique show, that I deliver a small order first. So I did white just for, like, um, February delivery. And then I did the other colors for delivery a couple months later. So that let me spread out the delivery. And I could produce part of it while I was starting to turn the money. I did the orders on COD. So then when I delivered the boutiques would write a check and they had to pay right away they had to pay right away and you know at the show when they were standing in line it was kind of easy to ask them to do cod because i could sort of plead with them i'm a small designer and need this to be cod and they were they accommodated me but but did you also try to get like a a loan at a bank 
I tried and, and um, you know, I went to the bank, I remember, you know, with my stack of orders and yeah. they were like, well, how long have you been in business? I'm like, ooh. They just looked at you and they were like, you have no track record. You're not and a I'm business. I'm like, how do you get it? How do you do that then? Did, you know? But did you say, look, I've got $40,000 worth of orders here. Right. And they said, the first thing the person at the bank said, which was great, is how do you know they're even real orders? How do you know these? T-? I'm like, whoa. He said, if you check credit on the orders. I'm like, Checked credit on the orders. Whoa. Okay. No, I haven't done that. That's a good idea. Yeah. What, what does that mean? How do I do that? <laughs> were you oh. stressed out about this or were you because you don't sound stressed out about it now you sound like very chilled out and oh, I think maybe it's just wow. kind of your your uh, the, your demeanor your, you just seem very calm and no no it was you were nervous yeah 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 wow. well um, was I nervous you mean during the days when or I was trying to you, make yeah, this come together to, no yes. no no I wasn't nervous then I was nervous at the show I was nervous when I had to present myself but I was never nervous you know, trying to solve the problem. I loved solving the problem. Right. I love, okay, how am I going to get the money? How am I going to do this? You know, uh, who's going to help me? How am I going to ask? What What do I need here? You know, and I did little shows in my, you know, in my loft, and I had friends come, and they brought friends, and they bought orders, and, and they, you know, they paid me up front, and then I could deliver, uh, things like that. Anything you had to do to just get, Anything. Yeah. It was like puzzle-making, kind of, and, and it was fun, and just figuring it all out. I like, I like, I guess I'm a math major somewhere in my soul, yeah. you know, I like solving puzzles and problems and, you know, trying to, you know, make things right. So you would make some, get the cash, and then take use the cash to buy more material and then just continue to kind of fund it that way. Right, right. Scrambling day by day, you know, yeah. how to make this work and... You know, then go to the next show and sell $80,000 worth of orders. And then it's like, oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> Here we go. Wow. You know. So at what point did you did you actually say, I, this is real? Like, I'm not just going to trade shows. This is a company. I need to hire somebody. Oh, well, I, I hired my first official employee. That was Siggy, who still works for the company today. And I don't remember thinking I'm a real business or anything. I just remember thinking I need help. Yeah. I really need some stable help. And did you start to go to department stores and, and do the thing that you were mortified to do earlier in your in your design career? No, I never did that. But eventually opened a store on Madison Avenue. Um, and buyers from the department stores would come. So you opened this, this store on Madison Avenue in, in 1991. And uh, how did it do? Really well. Again, similar experience to that um, boutique show where, you know, people just stood in line and bought clothes and stacks of clothes. And they were so delighted to find the store. And um, I remember that's when uh, I think it was a buyer, somebody from Bloomingdale's came in because they'd been looking at the line and curious. And they um, would say things like, "Um, you know, know, great clothes, but, you know, they're just going to get lost at Bloomingdale's. And um, they're too simple. I was that same thing, too simple, too <laughs> simple, you know. Um, but I knew that was the idea, <laughs> so I had to hold that piece. Anyway, um, so when they came into the store, they knew, they didn't understand it, but they knew something was happening. <laughs> and so they wanted to open a shop, a small shop in Bloomingdale's. Inside Bloomingdale's. Huh? Bloomingdale's. Yeah, so that was a kind of, I think that catapulted us to another phase. Who were your customers? Were they... Um, was it a certain type of woman? Was it a certain age? Was it a certain profession? Um, yeah, in the early days, I described them as um, artists, therapists, and teachers. <laughs> and it seemed like they were people who, you know, um, I used to say they 
they help people find themselves, <laughs> something like that, you know, that or that they could figure out how to make their own style with these clothes, and they could they operate in a you know not in such a corporate world. They didn't have to dress a certain kind of way. Hmm. How were you able to finance the stores and the production just through existing sales? Yes and no. Uh, we found we were able to get a line of credit of our fabric manufacturers because we, we bought fabric in bulk even though we were small because we I was very dedicated to a certain fabric. So, hmm. you know, I built around one fabric. And then I I had my brother-in-law came and was helping me, and he got me a small li- line of credit, $50,000 line of credit. Then I got a new accountant who, you know, helped me tap into the banks and how you had to put business plans together. And so it was a combination of credit lines and loans and, you know, self-funding because it was growing and it was um, profitable. It was always profitable. Hmm. From there, were you, I mean, was the growth just off the charts? Were you just, was that what was happening? You know, it was um, kind of strong and steady, you know. It was um, not exactly off the charts, but it was exciting. And sometimes it felt like, you know, like horses in a carriage, like kind of out of control a little bit, you know, like it was pulling me somehow. Um, And, you know, mostly it wasn't too out of control. It was, you know, it was mostly organic. There was never like an attempt to make it ever bigger than it was. It was more like, okay, it's working, so let's open two more stores. Or it's working, so let's open four more stores. Yeah. You know, or um, now, you know, you know, other department stores want to buy the line. You know, um, Saks and Nordstroms and you know, that kind of thing. What, what was your revenue at that point? Oh different moments in time, how much um, I can't remember. I remember my dad came to visit me one time in the early days, and he, he sat back in the chair. He was an accountant. He was going over some of my books. He wanted to make sure I was getting paid and things were working out okay. It was so adorable. And he sat back in the chair, and he said, Eileen, do you know how much money you made last year? And I said, no, I really don't. And he said, $200,000. That's incredible. Wow. That was gross sales, of course, and there were plenty of expenses, but, you know, it was still pretty, pretty shocking. How did you, I mean, as the company was growing in in the 1990s, um, how did you deal with being a CEO? Did you... Did you like that oh, part CEO. of the job? No, 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 no. Um, no. I, I think CEO is a word that I've always... Uh, I've always been sort of uncomfortable yeah. and not actually held that title. I used to call myself chief creative officer. That was sort of the closest I could come. But I did know that sort of the buck stopped with me. You know, sometimes I had to make important decisions, you know, which were, would have been would be hard. Um, but I always kind of held... the business and sort of from a leadership standpoint pretty pretty loosely and so I like the designers being with it and making it you know their own and working together and you know in a, in a sort of collective way um, and I feel that way about the leadership and, and even today we're a leadership team yeah uh, it's pretty complicated and we're really working to streamline it and we're getting better we're getting a lot better but in in that period of time when you really I mean really just started to explode in in your growth yeah uh, I mean did, did you find yourself in a position that you were reluctant to be in yeah yeah I would yeah. say that's accurate um, I saw myself more as a designer artist rather than a business person even though I wasn't bad at it 
um, in terms of maybe not so much the managing of people. I guess I never liked telling people what to do. I, <laughs> I, and I never liked working for other people. Uh, you know, when they would sort of tell you what to do, yeah. I didn't. I didn't like being told. I like give me the problem and let me do it my way, kind of thing. Eileen, did you? I mean, I know that um, in the '90s it was a um, an incredibly just active time for Eileen Fisher and, and would continue and also personally I mean you were yeah. Yeah. you'd been married you had two children in a, in a four year period of time mm. two mm. young kids you were mm. trying to run this company mm. and your marriage was kind of falling apart too yeah. how did you how did you manage the personal and the and the professional um, I would say that was the hardest hardest ever and if I look back Man, if I could do anything differently, that'd be. No, I'm not not going into regret, but mm. that was incredibly hard. Um, God, I think about all the women out there trying to start businesses and work in the business world, and just how hard it is to manage families. I just, oh. so I really had to rely on the people in the company. I tried to again, you know, sort of lead loosely and just, but I struggled a lot with being in two different places and wanting to be at work when I was at home or worrying about work, mm. you know, and reading reports and trying to understand if it's working or not and what's working and what's going wrong, and and at the same time worrying about my kids when I was at work and just, you know, I guess the the thing I say to myself now is that um, if I look back, I would. I would have just worked harder on being where I was and just huh. doing what I was doing in the moment and stop trying to be two places just and stop taking the work home and just mm. do the best you can and you were you trying know. to be the best mom you could be and yeah. and also run the company and yeah. you I must I mean it it it, it kind of sounds a little bit like what your mom went through where she was kind oh, of God. overwhelmed right I mean yeah. she was it was yeah. relentless. Every day was this hamster wheel. Yeah. Uh, I did the best I could. I, I had to let go a lot. I had to trust a lot of people, um, which which worked and didn't, you know. It worked in places. And then there were moments that I felt, you know, sad about how I'd let go too much over here. When, you know, I'd go into a store and see pieces I didn't recognize or feel like the line didn't look right or mm. I couldn't find the clothes I wanted to wear or it wasn't really the concept. It was gone. Where was the soul of this company and, you know, what happened? And, yeah. you know, um, once I got divorced, it was my kids were four and eight, and I said, I am, I'm going to stop working on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday at 3 o'clock. I worked in my home a lot, and I would... You know, let the people keep working, and I'd close the door and go and, you know, and be with my kids. And, you know, my husband would have the kids on Mondays and Tuesdays, and we shared the weekends and things like that. Um, so it, it actually worked better for me. I don't think it worked so well for them. They didn't really like the going back and forth stuff, and, and I guess kids never like divorce. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, over time I sorted it out, and... Things got better. I got I got stronger. I, I started doing things like yoga and meditating. I had some time to myself, which my mother never had, you know. Yeah. Um, I didn't have to have a breakdown, actually, to, to get a hold of myself. I mean, was there a point, Eileen, where you thought, because your business was 
I mean, it was cute. By this point, it's already huge. Like you were yeah. successful beyond your wildest dreams. And this yeah. is the late nineties. It's not even oh, yeah. where you are today. And yeah. did you ever think maybe I should just cash it in and sell this company to somebody and just just wash my hands of it? Oh my God, no! I never, never thought that. Never no, thought no. that. Never, never crossed your mind. That would be like selling my firstborn child. <laughs> it just really felt like that. Yeah, but no. you were under so much stress, and you had, you, you did have that security blanket. You could have done that. Oh right, it was never about the money. No, hmm. I mean, probably in the very beginning when I didn't know how to price the clothes, it wasn't about the money. But um, it was personal, I guess. I wanted it to be how I wanted it to be, and I think it's still true. And, and actually what I did do was sell part of the business to the employees. Um, so we are 40% ESOP, employee-owned. And I always wanted that collective idea. I wanted, I wanted the people who are a part of it to participate and feel like owners and be owners. Yeah. I think Eileen Fisher has like 55. I'm talking about you, but Eileen Fisher, right. the company. Your company has like about 60 stores around the world now. Is that right? Right. Right. Roughly, yes. And thousands of employees, probably. Uh, 1,200 um, on direct employees. But many, probably 10,000 people work daily on our, making our clothes. And, and Presumably, as the company became bigger and bigger, it became more corporate, more corporate because you had just had more people. You had to, right. it was a big company. It was, it was like right. a lot of revenue. You were doing a hundred plus million dollars a year at a certain point, and of course, much more today. But was that was that weird for you? I mean, you, you're you're the person who who didn't want to work for other people. All of a sudden, you are your name is a corporation. Oh man, yeah. was that weird? It is weird. Yeah, it was weird. It's still weird. <laughs> Someone suggested I write a book called "How I Became Eileen Fisher." I don't know, sort of <laughs> like it's a strange thing. I I, I I keep thinking I, I like I keep thinking of your dad coming to visit you in New yeah. York in your early days and saying, you know, doing, like, looking through your books and saying, Eileen, you guys made $200,000 last year, just being yeah. so blown away by that. Um, yeah. Eileen Fisher does, like, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue a year. I mean, is it strange to you that you became rich even though you never wanted to or tried, yeah. that wasn't your intention? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. I'm still very uncomfortable with that. That's something that I uh, have to do some more work in therapy on. <laughs> yeah. And especially because you grew up with, like, seven children in your house right. and this right. very middle class. Oh, yeah. I put myself through college. Right. You know, my father said, you know, women don't need to go to school. So, you know, wow. like that. You know? Did your parents ever see this level of success? I mean... Yeah, my mother did. My father was utterly, totally impressed by $200,000. He didn't need to see any more. <laughs> but my mother did. I don't know that she understood it quite. You know, my sisters work in the store out in the Midwest, and so she'd go in there. She was so adorable. She would go in, and even as the company got really big, and she'd she'd see damages. We'd have a section of damages that we'd sell in the back of the store cheap. Mm -hmm. And she'd go to the back of the store and pick out those damages and say, I can fix this. <laughs> she'd take them, take them home and fix pieces. And you could sell this as good as a first burst. Put it on the main rack. <laughs> but I think to her, you know, you know, it could have been two hundred thousand. It would have been just fine. Yeah. It didn't need yeah. to be this big. Nobody, you know, that didn't didn't mean so much to her. You know, 
It sounds like you are in a pretty good place in life, um, <laughs> professionally, personally. You sort of, you don't have to do the logistical, operational stuff with the right. company. You have, you can have like vision and big picture stuff, and and you seem like you're really happy. Yeah. Well, you know. Not every day, not all the time, <laughs> um, but I I know how to work with it. You know, I watched my mother; she was depressed, hmm. and you know, I remember having this insight even before I started the business. When I went through kind of a dark moment in my late twenties, I remember going, you know, having this revelation that I can make a different choice. I don't have to be depressed just because my mother was depressed. Hmm. I might have to be overwhelmed because my mother was overwhelmed, but I don't have to be depressed. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't understand the full impact of the different choices I had to make, but I realized that I could choose. Um, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't get the better of me some days, but I also know it doesn't last long. So I would say happy. I'm happy. I'm also really sad sometimes. <laughs> I'm also really... Um, you know, scared. Like before I came in here today, I'm really anxious. I'm really yeah. excited. I'm really more feeling full than probably ever in my life. I love that you, because everybody listening to this is going to say, Eileen Fisher, hugely successful, you know, created this amazing company and brand, has, you know, made it beyond her wildest dreams. And yet she has bad days. She gets sad. Oh. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think what's different is now I know that <laughs> and I can I can look at it and I can just be with it. And so if I'm anxious, I can just say, hey, I'm anxious and it's okay. You know, I don't have to try to pretend I'm not. I can just be who I am and that's okay. Eileen Fisher, the founder of Eileen Fisher. By the way, Eileen still oversees all of the designs for the company, and in recent years, she launched a program called Green Eileen. The goal is to eventually reuse or recycle almost all of the clothing the company sells. And please do stick around, because in just a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you're building. But first, a quick message from one of our sponsors, Mercedes-Benz. Featuring the new A-Class with MBUX, Mercedes-Benz User Experience, that's able to learn the way you speak and drive and respond with suggestions. Learn more about the A-Class at MBUSA.com. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around because it's time now for How You Built That. And today, we're updating a story we ran over a year ago. My name is Glenn Auerbach, and I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I've created Nice Mug. And the idea for Nice Mug came about totally by accident. It was on one of those freezing winter mornings in Minnesota when Glenn went outside to his backyard, and he picked up a jug of water that had frozen overnight. Nature freezes water in a jug from the outside in and from the bottom up. So you get kind of a hockey puck type freeze at the bottom, but there's this really interesting cavity that freezes last. And that's an iconic shape. And that shape was a glass, like a, the kind of glass you would put on your dinner table, perfectly formed, made of clear ice. So being the uh, resourceful people that we are, with a beer in our hand, we poured a beer in and Nice Mug was born. 
I mean, can you say USA any more clearly than a cold beer in a glass made of ice? Anyway, the first thing Glenn did, naturally, was to take the ice mug into his backyard sauna. And it held up pretty well until, you know, it melted. So then... I started messing around with different molds and different ways that we could freeze ice. So and I as he experimented, Glenn came up with a plastic mold that seemed to do the trick. But it was a massive challenge for me to make clear ice. And without clear ice, you get leaks. And leaks are no fun. The leaks actually come from air bubbles in the ice. And Glenn tinkered for years to come up with a mold that would make a mug without the bubbles. And finally, he nailed it. It never leaks, and uh, I'm really proud of that. The way Glenn's mold works is pretty simple. Fill it with water, freeze it overnight, then pop out your own ice mug. He's now selling molds all over the country. And just a couple years ago, some executives at Coca-Cola in Egypt actually called him up and said, hey, we want to use nice mugs in one of our ads. Yeah, it's quite a rush. You know, the biggest beverage company in the world making nice mugs, putting Coca-Cola in there. We just had a great time. Business has tripled since we last spoke with Glenn, but nice mug is still a side hustle. And he's still assembling and shipping the molds from home. Eventually, he does hope to quit his day job as a salesman, just not yet. You know, if we could send our kid through college with the proceeds for Nice Mug, well, I couldn't be happier. And if you're wondering how long the ice mug actually lasts in your hands before it melts? We can have Nice Mugs that last like 30 minutes, 45 minutes. I mean, I suppose uh, the one thing that's cool about Nice Mug is when your ice is melted, you're done drinking. That's Glenn Oerbach of Minneapolis. He's the founder of Nice Mug. And if you want to learn more about Nice Mug or hear previous episodes, head to our podcast page, howibuiltthis.npr.org. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. We love hearing what you're up to. And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do give us a review. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at How I Built This. Our show was produced this week by Rund Abdelfata with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Mia Venkat, Julia Carney, JC Howard, Noor Kudzi, Neva Grant, Melissa Gray, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Candace Lim. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Nespresso Professional, exceptional coffee for businesses. With the new Nespresso Momento coffee and milk machine, create barista-quality, fresh milk coffee drinks in your office. Learn more at Nespresso.com pro. The news moves fast. Listen to the NPR News Now podcast to keep up. We update stories as they evolve every hour. So no matter when you listen, you get the news as close to live as possible on your schedule. Subscribe to or follow the NPR News Now podcast.